I think this idea of taking risk factors and then translating it to something that we can use to really prevent disease is maybe coming into its infancy right now. And I know that those of us who study these risk factors are really hoping to accelerate this process so that we can get to this goal of preventing disease very, very soon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your host, Jeremy Holden. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, there is no definitive method to prevent ALS today. But researchers around the world are looking to change that. It's one of the keys to making ALS a livable disease while continuing the search for cures, preventing new cases of the disease. Achieving this ambitious goal requires a large body of knowledge. That includes an understanding of the causes and risk factors for ALS, methods for predicting when the clinical manifestations of ALS will emerge, and viable strategies to intervene either by mitigating risk or by treating the underlying biology of disease before ALS clinically manifests. To that end, the ALS Association recently launched a new grant program to advance the science of prevention and delaying onset of ALS. To learn more about the concept of preventing ALS, I recently sat down with Dr. Stephen Goutman, an assistant professor in the Department of Neurology at the University of Michigan, the director of the Pranger Amyotrophic Lateral Sclerosis Clinic, and associate director of the ALS Center of Excellence at Michigan Medicine. Dr. Goutman, thank you so much for being with us this week on Connecting ALS. It's a pleasure to be here. I listened to the podcast, so it's actually an honor to be asked to speak with you today. Ah, it's great to hear. We, we love our listeners. So talking about kind of a, what seems like a big topic and a new topic to a lot of folks, and that is preventing cases of ALS. It's one of the pillars of the ALS Association's goal of making ALS a livable disease, which itself is a new concept. You know, I kind of want to take a step back and understand how new this is. Like, How long have researchers been talking about the concept of trying to prevent cases of ALS? Yeah, so let's take a step back first and, and let's just talk about this idea of prevention. And I think prevention may have like a different idea in people's heads. So some people may think about preventing the spread of disease, preventing the accumulation of disability with disease or even preventing the onset of disease. And so here in this podcast is what we're focusing on is really preventing the disease from manifesting in the first place. And if one looks back in the literature, really from descriptions in the mid 1800s and even into the early 1900s, there were physicians and other scientists really trying to think about what are the potential ALS risk factors. And I think it's not really until, until more recently when we're really trying to understand how to operationalize these prevention efforts, whether they be based off of genetic factors, environmental factors, or other factors. I think this idea of taking risk factors and then translating it to something that we can use to really prevent disease is maybe coming into its infancy right now. And I, and I know that those of us who study these risk factors are really hoping to accelerate this process so that we can really get to this goal of preventing disease very, very soon. You talk about risk factors and you know we've had the opportunity on this program to talk to a couple of different researchers who are working in some of the risk factors, whether that's CTE, 
certain types of algal blooms. Obviously, there's research showing that military veterans have a higher likelihood of being diagnosed with ALS and not a lot of clarity around maybe what the risk factors are there. Talk to us a little bit about what these risk factors are and where we go from figuring out what they are to this idea of prevention. Yeah, they all really have interesting data to show us some linkages or connections to ALS. And I think it's important for us to also recognize that these risk factors may differ from person to person and even from region to region. And so obviously not everyone that I see and take care of has this long history of chronic traumatic encephalopathy or a large number of head injuries. And not everyone that I take care of has served in the military. So we do need to be thinking that these risk factors, the ones that you've named, including others like pesticides or certain occupational exposures or certain exposures to metals may differ across the spectrum of individuals who get ALS and across the regions of the country and even the regions of the globe. But I think what's critical is that these risk factors, whatever they may be, could really help us identify some of these modifiable risks and could help us really link what these particular exposures are doing to the mechanisms that are leading to, say, neuronal cell death and the mechanisms of ALS. And that gives us a therapeutic target. I think we have to have an open mind as to what we consider a risk factor and we have to follow the scientific evidence wherever it goes. So we need to explore whatever the risk people are trying to see in a certain population. So if it's the military population, you know, let's dig deep. Let's try to understand those risks. If it's chronic traumatic encephalopathy, I mean, certainly there's a lot of building evidence in certain professional athletes that ALS may be higher risk in certain sports, and we need to chase that down. But we need to understand these things scientifically because then we can translate that into what changes can we make, whether they be lifestyle changes or other changes or other druggable targets that can be used to eventually prevent people from getting ALS. Another potential risk factor, I don't, I don't know if we would think about it as risk factor the same way some of the things that these other lifestyle, maybe things that we're talking about, but I'm thinking about some of the genes that are affiliated with ALS and you know, genetic testing has been very front of mind in the news uh, lately in the last you know, several years. Things. So what role do genes play? What role can genetic testing play as we start to think about prevention? Yeah. So genetic testing is certainly one of the ways that we can think about ALS prevention. It's almost in a way easier to think about operationalizing the prevention of ALS through genetics as it is through these really non-specific environmental risk factors. Yeah. And so we haven't really talked about this uh, yet, but there are a whole host of risks that may lead one to get ALS. One may be a certain gene that is highly associated with one's risk of developing ALS. It may be a sole genetic cause. It may be a genetic cause plus other exposures, or on the flip side, it may be entirely driven by some environmental risk factor, or what we think more commonly is really a combination of someone's underlying genetic risk spread across the genome combined with exposures over time that really push somebody over some threshold to go on and, and get disease. What is unique about genetic testing is to some degree, we actually understand the problem. Like we understand to a certain degree, how many genes are testable and the risk that 
one may have, if they carry a gene, we have some idea that they may go on to get disease. We understand that more for somebody that, say, carries the C9RF72 mutation versus some of the other less common mutations. And so I think that genetic testing plays an important role. Certainly over the last 10 years, there have been many more genes connected to ALS than there has been in the past. It seems to, to almost be exploding the number of genes that people are associating with the ALS risk. And so when I first started caring for people with ALS, genetic testing, we really limited it to people who had a family history. And, and that was for a few reasons. One, tests were costly. Um, they were difficult to get approved or insurance wouldn't cover it. And now we have this opportunity to really order genetic tests on everybody, even at no cost to people. There's some sponsored testing programs. And so I think genetic testing is becoming more available. And through some programs, there have been barriers broken down against the cost of genetic testing. So genetic testing really is going to play a role in identifying individuals who could benefit, I think, from targeted therapeutics. And I think this is what the real potential that we see with genetic testing. So our hope in the future, right? Our hope is that there's going to be some therapy that's really targeted towards a certain genetic form of ALS. And then expanding on that, our hope is that in somebody who carries that gene, if there's a, an effective therapy, that therapy could eventually then be used to prevent them from getting disease. The other thing, and I realize there's a lot of controversy surrounding topics like this right now, but if one knows that they're a carrier of a genetic mutation that can assist somebody in terms of reproductive planning. And so that's another way that we can think about the use of genetic testing results to go on to prevent cases of ALS. It sounds like something that with genetic testing and just with this conversation of prevention, genetic testing, we've come a long way in the last 10 years and it's going to continue to develop. So the answer to these questions today might be different from the answer to these questions five years from now as we learn more. For sure. We don't know all the genes that are implicated in ALS. We, yeah. you know, we, can, send a, we can send a panel of genes and it has... 30 genes. And there are people who are going to argue that maybe only a handful of those are strongly connected to somebody's risk of going on to get ALS. And some of those are less connected to that risk. So this is information that we need to continue to discover. I think we're going to learn more as we start more wider testing of individuals living with ALS. You know, we're going to really understand what is the frequency of some of these mutations, who seems to be affected, what are some of the clinical characteristics and over time understand what is the rate of ALS in, in families with some of these mutations. So genetic testing is not necessarily in its, in its infancy, but it's definitely being used, I think, more commonly in ALS. And I think as these therapies are hopefully coming to the clinic that we can use to target people or target people that have certain genetic forms of disease, that we're really going to be testing more widely and understanding the different distribution of genes in, in our patients. You mentioned um, that concept of infancy and how prevention is maybe in its infancy. With that in mind, listeners should know the ALS Association recently launched its first ever research funding program for prevention research. What are your thoughts on grant programs like that that have the potential maybe, or do they have the potential to push this from its infancy and move it forward? Yeah. I mean, the ALS Association can definitely move the needle on an issue like this. I mean, what we need now, I mean, so there's a few 
critical pieces that we need to solve here. So one is the risk factor identification, right? So we need to find the factors that are involved and implicated in ALS. We also need to really understand how to take these risk factors and translate them into some clinical action, right? What clinical change can I suggest that makes somebody less likely to go on and get ALS? And I think that's a harder concept. It's kind of a harder grant to write because we may not necessarily be walking in right now with all of the things like preliminary data that we need to support a grant opportunity. So the fact that the ALS Association is really coming in saying, we want to put an emphasis on this need for prevention, and we want to put an emphasis on some ability to translate what we know now to actual better clinical outcomes in the future, I think is really important. We want to keep our eye on the fact that we do need to continue to spend our time identifying risk factors and doing the scientifically rigorous types of studies that we do to make sure that the risk factors we're identifying are indeed linked to ALS. But I think in parallel, we do want to say, do we know enough now to make changes to the way we care for people, advise people, and counsel people? And I think that's really what this proposal will let us start thinking about or enable us to think about with the funding backing of of the association. So I'm excited for it. I'm excited to see what ideas come in front of the review committee and see how this funding opportunity is going to help move the needle as we work towards preventing ALS. I want to jump off that concept of moving the needle. Where do you see this research going in the next, say, five to 10 years? I know that you are are co-authoring or working on a white paper that's going to help kind of set the agenda here, but what are the next steps and, and what does this look like in the future? So that's a really good question. So my crystal ball broke today and I can't really, you know, I can't really tell you what all the ideas are that are going to come out to change this scope of prevention in, in the next five years. I would say that we do have this white paper and this really came out of a, a workshop that the ALS association hosted back in October of 2020. And we're working on getting the scope of this workshop out into the community. And Michael Benatar is is leading the publication along with Amar Al-Shalabi, Evelyn Talbot, Mark Weisskopf, and Eva Feldman, and really additional support from Kim Statz and the ALS Association team. And so the idea behind this workshop is what do we know now about risk factors? What do we need to know? And what do we need to do to be thinking about prevention and for operationalizing prevention. So I think we have some idea now about what are some of the critical risk factors involved in ALS. You had noted previously, I mean, we know there are certain families that have genetic mutations. Certainly those individuals are going to be at higher risk of developing ALS. We know that veterans of the military are certainly at higher risk of developing ALS We've seen literature, say, in former NFL football players that seem to be developing ALS at higher rates. There's the literature surrounding Italian soccer players that have higher rates of ALS. We're concerned about individuals that have higher exposures to things like pesticides, to metals. We've published recently 
about certain occupational risk factors. And we've seen that those working in production occupations have a higher risk of ALS and those that self-report occupational exposures to things like metals and to combustion and diesel exhaust seem to have a higher rate of ALS. So one of the things that we need to do is keep working to understand who's at risk. How do I identify who's at risk? How do we target populations at risk for modification? I think that there are potential risks that we've not yet thought about. And, and so my hope over the next five years is how do we continue to identify risk factors? How do we continue to strengthen the evidence that certain risks are highly correlated with ALS? And then how do we use this information to do a number of things? So I think one is generate the continued funding so that we can dive deeper I think when we start thinking about risk factors that are, say, present in the, in the environment, this requires some action or change, right? Because we are not necessarily always able to control the things that we are exposed to. So if we're worried about pesticide exposure, we can choose, say, to buy organic foods or change the types of foods that we're buying, but we can't control necessarily who's spraying our community with pesticides. We don't have the ability, say, to control all the air pollution around us, although we maybe have the ability to move, but that's not the case for everybody. But we also know that some of these exposures that we're thinking about are not necessarily confined to a particular area. So I do think there's going to be some advocacy behind some of the findings that we see over the next five years. Like, are we going to need to be making some changes in policy that's going to overall reduce the risk of ALS. You know, I do think that there's going to be some overlap with other neurodegenerative diseases. And so what we learn for ALS is not necessarily going to be living in a vacuum. You know, hopefully the, mm. the changes that we make to reduce the risk of ALS is also say going to help reduce the risk of say frontotemporal dementia or Alzheimer's disease or other neurodegenerative diseases. And I would hope the reverse is true, right? If, if there's some policy changes yeah. that are reducing the risk of somebody going on to get Alzheimer's disease, it's going to help reduce the risk of, say, somebody getting ALS. Yeah, Dr. Gatman, another buzzword that I've heard a lot about recently, and, and folks can go back and listen to our conversation with uh, Stephen Kaufman, the new uh, head of the Board of Trustees for the ALS Association. But, but that word is data and, and the role that data is going to play in terms of developing treatments and, and eventually making ALS a livable disease, finding cures. Many different databases are out there, but one that comes to mind is this, the CDC registry. How do databases like that what role do they play in the work of trying to prevent cases of ALS? So I would say that the advocacy and the legislation to start the National ALS Registry, which is run through the CDC, is really an important step in terms of capturing the scope of the of ALS in the United States. And as a clinician and as a researcher and as someone who takes care of individuals living with ALS, I think it's really extremely important that everyone who's living with ALS go to the CDC website, register and fill out risk factor surveys. This is one way that we can really start to identify certain causes or certain associations that people have that may increase their risk of ALS. But I think separately, it's actually worth really thinking about 
what a registry is because registries are not mandatory. And so ALS is not a mandatory reportable disease. And that means we cannot know with complete certainty what's the incidence of ALS or in other words, how many people develop ALS per year. We don't know where they're living. This brings up concerns about things like health equity and health disparities and access to care for individuals with ALS. So I think a registry and mandatory reporting really helps us know these critical numbers that we need to know to understand if the changes we're making to try to prevent ALS are working, right? If we don't know exactly how many people are developing ALS a year, then we don't know if we're doing our job by trying to reduce it. Plus, I think that we may find that there's certain regions in this country where, say, we're finding issues of access to care and resources for people living with ALS. You know, perhaps if you're in more rural areas, it's harder to get care. Or there may be certain populations of people who have less access to care. And these are really important things as we think about making ALS more livable, right? Getting the clinical resources, the clinical care, the durable medical equipment, the medications to people living with ALS. So we also may find out that there are certain areas where disease tends to cluster. And we hear about this because of our work on environmental risk factors of ALS, people reach out to us and say, hey, I live in this area where five people around me all developed ALS. That seems more than a coincidence. And I, and I agree, but I think we need to have really this rigorous data to allow us to scientifically approach those questions and do the research into these clusters. So I think that there are opportunities out there for people to advocate at the state level to say, let's make ALS a mandatory reportable disease in my state so that we can get the data that researchers need to really understand who's getting ALS, where is it occurring? And then we can link that to potential interventions to reduce people's risk of getting, getting ALS in those regions. Dr. Gabba, we've heard from a lot of people that we've had the opportunity to talk to on this show about the long journey that they've gone through to receive a confirmed diagnosis. And as we think about ways that we could prevent the disease, how important is speeding up time to diagnosis? So at the beginning, we talked about the different ways that we can be thinking about prevention. And one of the ways I talked about was really preventing the progression of disease and preventing the progression of disability. So it's critical that we diagnose this disease earlier. And I think, you know, everyone that you talk to probably gives you the same answer. Essentially, the time it takes from somebody to first start developing symptoms to the time that they get diagnosed has not changed in decades. It's still around this one-year mark. And there was a really nice article actually published this month in the journal Neurology by Dr. Mitsumoto and Dr. Kasarskis and Dr. Simmons talking about this and talking about this journey for someone to, to get ALS. And as you know, the ALS Association has this Think ALS tool. I know it's been discussed on a prior podcast. And this is a tool to really make clinicians think about the person sitting in front of them and are they presenting with these unique features that should make them think, hey, this could be ALS. I don't need to make the diagnosis, but I need to get them to somebody who, who can and do this on an urgent basis. And the reason is this. Early diagnosis means an earlier opportunity for us to start treating people with 
therapeutics and other devices that may slow disease. And I think what we've started to see is that there's building evidence to say that the earlier we can get somebody treated, the bigger effect it's going to have on slowing disease and the bigger treatment effect. So if we can really collapse that window from the onset of symptoms to the diagnosis, I think we're going to be able to improve outcomes. What's Now, when we link this back to the idea of prevention, I think we can take this a step further and say, well, if we know individuals who are at risk and Michael Benatar at Miami has done a really nice job like with his family studies. So if we know who's at risk, can we even move that window earlier? In other words, can we diagnose people before they have symptoms? Because if we can do that, then we can start treatments before they even develop symptoms. And maybe that gives us an even better treatment outcome. So moving the diagnosis forward in terms of someone's symptom onset is critical. And I think as we're thinking about prevention, really trying to identify people before they get disease, before they get symptoms, which seems like an impossible task, but you know nothing's impossible if we put our minds to it. If we can identify who's at risk of disease and monitor them, if we can treat before the symptoms start, I think we're going to have a better opportunity to make a more meaningful impact on someone's treatment and thus prevent the progression of the disability and prevent the progression in symptoms. Well, a hopeful note to conclude things on. Uh, Dr. Stephen Gatman, thanks again for your time this week. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I want to thank my guest this week, Dr. Stephen Gautman. If you like this week's episode, please share it with a friend. And while you're at it, please rate and review Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a great way for us to connect with even more listeners. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Alex Brower. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. Thanks again for listening. We'll connect with you again soon. Thank you.